Hey everyone, Sean and I are excited to announce that Human Performance Outliers Podcast has partnered with Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery store that focuses on making high quality grocery shopping easy. By going to thrivemarket.com backslash HPO and shopping, you not only support the HPO podcast, but will also receive 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices. On top of that, with every annual membership, Thrive will donate a free annual membership to low-income family, teacher, or veteran. If you don't make up your membership fee and savings, Thrive will refund your membership fee. The link can be found in the show notes. Thanks for your support. <laughs> well, let's get going. Let's get going, Zach. We're we cool. on record. Yep. I know we're, we're ready record to roll. This. We sometimes okay. record this up. Great. Let's so, do that. So, Nina, um, first of all, thank you so much for coming on and agreeing. I know you've, uh, like I, I said, I know you're... I think you're amazing. I mean, well, I'm just so impressed by what you're doing. Well, we're just trying, you know, we're trying to trying to do the right thing and we're motivated and, you know, we, 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 we kind of charge pretty hard, but one way or the other, it's going to make a difference. Maybe we'll fall on our faces and, you know, explode, but hopefully not. But Hey, so let me just, um, so again, for most of the people that are going to listen to this, know who you are, they, they, you know, and if not, we'll go over that a little bit, but there's a lot of other stuff I want to get into because, um, you know, you wrote, you know, the book, The Big Fat Surprise, which I read, you know, several years ago. I can't remember. It's been out, what, four or five years now, I think, something like that, maybe three years. I can't remember. But great, okay. wonderful, awesome read, beautiful book. Just, just you know, the, you just had an excellent way of just telling the story. You made it very, you know, you know, even though the material on the surface may seem not that exciting, but you, you turned it into a an exciting bit of bit of literature, which was which is always fun to read. And I really appreciate that. And I know a lot of people have learned just a tremendous amount on that. And we'll, we'll, we can go to the particulars on that stuff. Cause I think that's it's interesting, but one of the things, this is one of the questions, cause I know you've got the nutrition coalition going on and, you know, since the books come out, you've gotten really heavily involved in sort of let's, let's fix these damn dietary guidelines. Let's, let's, let's get evidence out there. And I, and I, and I applaud you for that effort. Now here's what I, this is just me talking as a dumb guy that's sitting there like, I don't know what the guy, you know, I never knew what the dietary guidelines really read because I'd never read them as a normal human being. It's only since I got interested in the stuff that I cared. But for the average Joe, they don't even know what the guidelines are. They, they, they know, yeah, eat a few fruits, don't eat a bunch of fat. And that's, that's most of the, that's the extent of most people's knowledge, really. And so why, why do we, should we even care about what's in the dietary guidelines? I mean, most people, like most people, you know, don't intentionally pay attention to them. They just eat what they're eating and they're kind of eating, you know, kind of what they think is healthy or, or maybe not, or maybe they don't even care. But I mean, I think, you know, if you would ask, you know, man on the street, you know, ask 10 people and probably you'd be lucky if one person could tell you accurately what's totally in the guidelines. So since most people don't even know what's in them, why are they even important? Why are you, why all this effort to change the guidelines? Can you, can you touch on the relevance and the importance of why this is important to do? Yeah, I mean, if I think if you asked your listening audience, like, okay, how many people have been told that eating more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and cutting back on uh, whole fat, anything in whole fat meat, whole fat dairy is a good is good for health? And I would say like, ninety nine percent of people raise their hand. That's what we've all been told. Well, guess what? That comes from the guidelines. So. You know, even though you don't go to a .gov website to look up your diet, the reality is the dietary guidelines are the most influential nutrition policy in the in America, and they are downloaded through uh, all your medical associations, and then they reach out through, you know, they're kind of like this multi-tentacled thing that reaches out to every medical office, every doctor's, nutritionist, dietitian's office, every school, every school class about nutrition, 
um, you know, they reach in, they're downloaded by, by every professional and they reach you. So even though you don't know you're getting the guidelines, they are getting to you. And the guidelines say eat more fruits and vegetables, whole grains, cut back on, you know, eat low fat dairy, lean meat, and don't eat much meat at all anyway. And, and, um, and basically, uh, that's what everyone needs to eat in order to be healthy. And, um, and the dietary guidelines have been, have been, were launched by the American government in 1980. And in 1980 is the year when the obesity epidemic turns sharply, suddenly upwards. And so there's a really good case to be made that uh, the dietary guidelines have really caused the obesity and diabetes epidemics. Um, and the traditional argument, I mean, the reason I got so uh, obsessed about the guidelines <laughs> is that I discovered that they're so influential. Like, they're not only are they advice given to everyone, but, you know, all cattle has been bred to be leaner. Thousands of low-fat products were developed by companies to and on mm-hmm. to, to be introduced on shelves all over supermarkets in America. Low-fat yogurt, low-fat peanut butter, low-fat salad dressings. Everything responded to the guidelines. And they seem to have caused obesity and diabetes. You know, so the traditional kind of... Um, rationalizations for obesity and diabetes is that Americans just eat, they eat too many calories, they don't follow the guidelines, and they don't exercise enough. So, you know, as a journalist, I'm interested, like, okay, what is the evidence base for these claims? Um, They seem to be widely believed, and so I went diving into the evidence and looked at it, and here's what the best available evidence tells us. Americans have done an amazingly good job of following the guidelines. From 1970 until today, we have you know, reduced consumption of red meat by um, 34, uh, 28%, 34% reduction in beef. We've reduced whole milk by 79%. We've reduced animal fats by 19%. We've reduced butter by 17%. We've increased fruits and vegetables, vegetables by 30%, fruits by 20%, grains by 40%. Like in every food group that you look at, we have increased the things that we're supposed to increase and we've decreased the things that we're supposed to incre- decrease. So, we follow the guidelines. Also in terms of fat and carbs, increased carbohydrates by more than 30%, as we've been told, decreased fats by more than 20%, as we've been told, decreased saturated fats by 17%. So everything looks like, you can't say we haven't followed the guidelines. So Nina, let me let me interrupt you here for a second, because you know, we, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm aware of what, you know, I've seen that information that you've shared, and, and you know, it, it's obvious that we have been. I mean, you know, the, the, the consumption data shows that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, but why are we doing that? I, you know, is it because if I go in the grocery store and take a, if I were to, if I were to walk into a grocery store and say, does the grocery store follow the guidelines? Does it have X amount of fruits and vegetables and X amount of grains and, 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 and percentage-wise fat? Is it just because that's what we're being offered now? Is the food industry pr- promoting the guidelines based on what they're, what's available to us as humans? Or, or, or are we consciously making those choices? Or is it just because we're, we're walking in a supermarket and just by being in a supermarket, we're going to follow, follow the guidelines? You know, I don't know if I can answer that absolutely, but I, I think that... Um, the fact that the guidelines are are the like the the bible of every healthcare professional like so if you go and you go to your doctor and you are struggling with weight or maybe your your h1abc for diabetes is is climbing up or your your lipids don't look great and you're worried about heart disease 
every single dietitian, nutritionist, doctor will tell you the same thing and it all follows the guidelines. So then when we get to the supermarket, you choose the things that you think are healthy. So, I mean, I think we have to think about like the, the, the kind of conventional wisdom is like Americans just eat junk. We eat too much junk, and therefore we're like we're just we're just slovenly. <laughs> There's definitely a group of people out there who live on junk food, right? There's definitely people who you know, and maybe it's because they work really hard, they don't get paid well, they don't have time to prepare their meals, like they just they, they can't do, they can't eat the Michael Pollan way. So they live on junk food. Those people probably know they aren't eating a healthy diet, and um, probably know they could improve their you know improve their nutrition. But there are a lot of people who try really hard to be healthy. They eat healthy whole grain, what they think are healthy whole grains. They eat quinoa. They keep their meat consumption low. They eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. And yet, somehow, unfathomably, they're still fat. And, and, they're, and, they are, you know, and their lipids don't look great. I mean, that was me. I was a vegetarian. I cooked my own bread. I made all my own meals. I was a faithful vegetarian for more than 20 years. Um, no red meat, no butter. And yet, and I exercised religiously, yet I was fat. I mean, not fat, fat, but I was, I was overweight. So there's a lot of people like that who are conscientiously following the guidelines, yet are unable to achieve their health or, you know, their health or diet goals. Um, yeah, so that's where the conundrum is. And so, you know, um, and the other explanation for why we're all fatter is that we all eat more calories. That's true. Since 1972 today, we eat maybe um, about 270, 290 more calories per day than we did back then. But 100, nearly 100% of those calories are carbohydrates. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to uh, see uh, like statistics on like red meat consumption since, uh, since the 1980 guidelines came out because a lot of people are blaming – you know, we've got this vilification of red meat, and as you know, I'm obviously a proponent of that. But can you discuss the consumption of red meat in the country since about 1977? Yeah, since 1970, um, I have to pull up my gra- my um, my numbers here so I can get them exact for you. So if you can hang on one second, but I think that the consumption of red meat has declined by about 28 percent since 1970, and beef specifically has declined by 34%. Those are pretty dramatic reductions in per capita consumption as as measured by food availability according to the best available government data. So this data is not perfect. It relies on self-reported food con- uh sorry, no. It it it's actually it's not self-reported data. This data is um is food availability and then they make an estimate of consumption based um, by eliminating loss. So it's actually pretty good data because it doesn't rely on food consumption reports. And it's definitely good. I spoke to the people who who produce this data, and it's definitely good for large trends. And the large trend is that since 1970, Americans have dramatically reduced their consumption of red meat. At the same time, we've seen, you know, epidemic increases in obesity, diabetes, um, and we certainly haven't conquered heart disease, and cancer seems to be on the rise. So it just, on the face of it, seems insane to blame red meat for any of those diseases. Let's talk about, you know, you talk about the dietary guidelines and, and the evidence upon which they're based upon, but let me ask you, who has a finger in the pie in developing those guidelines? Do the, does the food industry have any any say-so in how those guidelines are 
are uh, ultimately decided. What, what's who, who all has influence here? Because I think it's most people think it's just some government independent body that, that comes up with this. But who, you know, who has a stake? Who, who are the stakeholders in, in the guidelines development? You know, it's such an incredibly complex story. It really, um, not to promote my book, but it really, like, it. you really have to understand the, the factors that have gone into creating this government policy. You know, it started really with the American Heart Association back in 1961. They had an idea about how Americans ought to eat in order to prevent heart disease. That idea involved uh, restricting saturated fat and cholesterol. Um, which implied, you know, meat was caught in that those crossbows, and then the uh, the government, the U.S. government, really adopted the American Heart Association policy because when the government was coming up with their dietary guidelines in the late 1970s, they were close to the American Heart Association. The American Heart Association is really the only group giving expert dietary advice at the time, and. Um, it's really important to note this was all dietary advice on how to avoid heart disease. It wasn't anything about healthy growth and reproduction for children or you know, reproduction for women or growth for children. It was all about how should middle-aged men avoid heart disease. And it just kind of swept up women and children into, into under that uh, umbrella uh, without any, really without any legitimate reason. But um, so these guidelines, they started, they were launched in 1980 the original report was written by a um, vegetarian staffer in the Senate um, with the guidance of the American Heart Association and who didn't trust cattle ranchers. He thought they were like big tobacco um, who were trying to cover up the evils of their of their uh, corrupted product. And, you know, that was just his orientation. And he turned out to be very influential. His name was Nick Mottern. And that became the basis of our dietary guidelines. It was never based on rigorous evidence. That is one of the really shocking revelations. You know, I spent almost a decade researching my book, and I, for that, I read like 10,000 nutrition science studies all about all the clinical trials that were done try to fig- trying to figure out, does saturated fat actually cause heart disease? Does cholesterol cause heart disease? None of those clinical trials funded by our government, our taxpayer dollars, the National Institutes of Health, none of those trials were ever reviewed in by any expert committee that produced the guidelines so wow um but the guidelines are basically they come out every five years and they have since 1980 there's an expert committee of 13 to 15 members that is selected by the jointly u.s department of agriculture and u.s health and human services two government agencies they produce they select this committee there's no transparency on how and whom they, you know, how they select whom they do. There's no requirement to disclose any conflicts of interest that any of the members might have, whether they've worked for food companies or or are working for food companies. And then they, those people are are charged with, you know, reviewing the best, most current science. Um, and um, and that's how we get our guidelines. And involved in that process, you know, U.S. Department of Agriculture, their job is to promote agriculture and and livestock and you know they so they have this huge conflict of industry that sorry this conflict of interest that everybody noticed from the very start how can they be promoting american agriculture and at the same time telling people what not to eat uh in order to be healthy you know you have to choose pick and choose between your industries and the usda is is 
not inclined to do that when their job is is economic expansion of all American agriculture. So, you know, they've they've been conflicted and from the very beginning, and the and the there's plenty of evidence to show that the food food industries have been involved. You know, all food industries really have been involved in trying to influence the guidelines and trying to influence the science that goes into the guidelines. I mean, at all levels of nutrition science, we find that the food industry is heavily involved. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's a little, you know, it's, 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 one has to be cynical about a, a, you know, policy, like who are the actors in Washington? The actors are not individuals. The actors are, I mean, I've been to some of these listening sessions at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and I'm like the only non-industry person at the table. It's mainly industry whom they listen to. So we've got like, you know, companies like PepsiCo, Nabisco, Cargill and stuff like that that are donating resource dollars for, for researchers. They're, they're, lo- they're, they're actively lobbying, I, I suppose. I mean, is this what's going on that we're seeing that their, their influence is wielded in many different ways? And so they're basically influencing the policy that then directly impacts their product. And so basically we have a, a situation where the food companies are paying for you know, more, you know, indirectly paying for guidelines, which will then tell us what to eat and then which products to buy, you know, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, if they're clever, they influence the science at its very source. So they don't wait until the science gets to the level of making guidelines. They influence science. They fund the science at Cornell, at Harvard, at Tufts, at, you know, and they, they go in and they, they, they grant chairs or they provide research fellows or they provide industry, you know, funding for research. And then, they um, and 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 those uh, nutrition scientists happen to, to to have you know research findings that favor those products. Like there was a whole scandal about how Pepsi and or Co- I think it was Coke who was funding research centers, and their whole ambition was to show that a calorie is a calorie. All calories are the same. Doesn't matter. A calorie of sugar is the same as a calorie of broccoli, right? Because that benefits their product. It means that you can have a hundred calories of coke, and that's fine as long as you can work it off in your exercise session. It doesn't matter. You, you're fine having. And they were paying off nutrition scientists to to confirm that that viewpoint, which really is not supported by uh, you know a large body of science now. It's really like not all calories are are the same in the way that your body um, interprets and processes them, but. That was Coke trying to get in on that science, really at its source. It's much more persuasive that way. You know, if you if you're trying to if you're trying to alter policy when it's when it's to the level of being formed in a government agency, that's like that's almost too late. You want to get in early, and that's what nutrition. That's what many companies have done. Yeah, we. I mean, we saw evidence like going back to I think it was Fred Stare out of Harvard with big sh- the, the sugar companies and stuff like that from you know back in the you know what like 60s and stuff like that maybe even earlier. So it's been it's been going on for a long time. And so we have this, you know, you because I know you're trying to promote guidelines based on actual real evidence, but where is the evidence going to come from if it's all if it's all been sort of corrupt, you know, basically subject to these conflicts of interest. Where, where, how do we get decent information? I mean, I'm just confused. I'm looking through this stuff and I see nutrition science in a lot of ways is just so problematic that it's almost like it doesn't inform us on anything when, once you look at all the conflicts of interest and, you know, the, 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 the limitations, particularly when we use associational studies and epidemiology, it just seems like we have almost, you know, no information to go on that's, that's credible. What is your take on that, and how do we, 
uh, how do we uh, improve that process or can we improve that process? I know Gary Taubes was trying to trying to do that, and that's you know he's been struggling to to make that happen. But uh, what are your what's your thought on that the whole process? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. I think that um, uh, what we can do at this point with the get, with the existing randomized controlled clinical trial data, that is the gold standard of data that it exists already, is to at least reverse out of erroneous guidelines, right? So there is a body, there are several bodies of clinical trial literature. One of them tested uh, the low-fat diet on more than 55,000 people, NIH-funded trials, multi-center, um, they tested the low-fat diet, and they found the results were that that diet did not uh, have any positive benefit for people trying to combat obesity, diabetes, heart disease, or any kind of cancer. Okay, there's just several clinical trials, they're all government-funded. That data should be used to um, let everyone know that the low-fat diet doesn't work. Reverse out of that recommendation, because even though the dietary guidelines have dropped their language about a low-fat diet, they still, in their formularies, um, promote that diet for like school lunches and feeding programs for the elderly and military rations. They, they basically keep fat low and carbohydrates high. Okay, so you can reverse out of that erroneous recommendation. You could also reverse out of the erroneous recommendation that you should have any caps on saturated fats. Again, more than at least like 25,000 people were tested in trials looking at saturated fat and cholesterol. Do they cause heart disease? Um, and NIH-funded trials by governments, uh, also by governments all over the world, those trials have concluded in multiple, multiple uh, meta-analyses and systematic reviews have concluded saturated fats have no effect on cardiovascular mortality or total mortality. Therefore, we should reverse out of that recommendation because it is not evidence-based. That is what we could do. And, and I would add a third, you know, third and fourth. Let's reverse out of the guideline telling people to ex do 45 to 60 minutes of aerobic activity every day, every day just to maintain their weight. That has no evidence base, um, aerobic activity at that level, which, by the way, takes a lot of time out of your day. Um, has not been shown to be beneficial for health um, or, 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 you know, help you lose weight or even maintain your weight. So let's back out of that. And the SALT recommendations are, are the last one I wanted to mention where there is, you know, a huge amount of contradictory information. This idea that lower is better on SALT is something that the current evidence should would allow us to back out of that recommendation. So I'm arguing for just rolling back erroneous recommendations that are not based on good science. I'm not saying that we know at this point what an optimal diet is. That will take time, but at least we should reverse out of bad recommendations that aren't evidence-based in order to just level the playing field for new information to come in. Why, why aren't we already doing that? You know, I mean, what, what's what's the holdup? What is the resistance against that? Why, why haven't, I mean, if the evidence is so you know, obviously flawed, which, which you, you know, present it to be, why are people not uh, saying, okay, let's just switch directions? I mean, we've got, you know, whether Tom Vilsack and the rest of the folks over there at the Department of Agriculture, where I think he's from there, but why, why are they saying, no, we don't want to do that? I mean, what's, what's, what's holding that up right now? 
Well, you know, there's just this really entrenched status quo that does not want to reverse out of the recommendations upon which they have based their entire careers in terms of individual scientists, um, you know, three generations of scientists have invested themselves in this particular hypothesis about a low fat, low saturated fat, low cholesterol diet. They're not reversing out of that easily, nor are institutions wanting to reverse themselves. It's a lot of cognitive dissonance. It's a lot of um, mea culpas. I mean, I think that it's really hard to, to do that. And additionally, there hasn't been anybody pushing for it. Um, Really, until my group came along, the group that I founded, the Nutrition Coalition, there really hasn't been anybody that has been advocating for this. You know, this movement that you're a part of, that so many people are a part of, kind of people who have discovered their health by ignoring government guidelines, going low carb, or maybe, you know, doing what you're doing in, in the way you eat. These are, you know, they're doctors, they're PhDs, they're people who have discovered their health, but we, you know, we, it, they're, they're not yet, like, savvy advocacy groups in Washington. Um, and the Nutrition Coalition is hardly a savvy advocacy group, but we're just a start. But I can tell you we're the first people making this argument in Washington. There's there's just nobody like us. You know, everybody else is arguing for the the high carb plant-based diet. And um and we're just this little voice in the wilderness. <laughs> I mean I think supported by a lot of science, but you know, we're we're up against a lot. I mean just to just to finish out the list of people who don't want change. All the pharmaceutical companies do not want change, right? Because they depend cynically upon Americans staying sick and taking their five-a-day medications, which is what the average American is on. Um, they, they are the main sponsors of the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, who, by the way, do not offer a low-carb diet for diabetes. Um, so there's just... And, and also, we're up against the food, you know, corn, soy... Um, wheat, um, processed foods, junk food industry, they don't want change either. So the forces, you know, the forces against change are just, you know, they're, they're, they've been at it for decades and, and they're very well organized. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a new unfolding battle and, and we're really, we're, we're the first, we're making the first step into trying to fight back. Yeah, it yeah, seems no, like um, with uh, go 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 ahead, Zach. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it seems like with uh, with a lot of this stuff, it's like you know we've given it enough time where some of these companies or these organizations have built really big ships, and as the saying kind of goes, it's really hard to reverse a really big ship. So like, um, especially when money is involved, and you know, to turn that stuff around would not only take like an infrastructural kind of shift by some of these companies. Uh, you know, they're probably going to try to ride it out as long as they can since they're very much making a lot of money on this stuff. And um, yeah, I think it's like ultimately what needs to happen is enough people need to say, stop this, give us this instead in order for them to kind of have their hands forced to kind of do that sort of thing. Is is that kind of where your, I guess, agenda or your 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 future progress kind of lies in? I mean, there are a lot of ways to make progress, right? I think that ultimately what we want to do is change the next iteration of the guidelines in 2020. We want them to reverse out of these bad guidelines that are not evidence-based, and we want them maybe to recognize, I think, in the ideal scenario, is to recognize the really enormous 
uh, body of rigorous literature that shows that a low-carb diet is safe and effective for people with metabolic diseases. Like, that would be a huge victory. And again, because the dietary guidelines are so powerful, if you could, if you could make that change, the top-down effect is really powerful. Um, and something I haven't talked about you know, yet is that uh, the, the dietary guidelines are powerful because um, many, many medical doctors or, or healthcare professionals, they are not allowed to teach anything about the guidelines or they get in trouble. They, get, they could get sued by their, especially if they're part of large uh, medical practices. They're, really, they're very constrained about what they can do in terms of offering advice. Um, and so it has to change. There, you know, we all know there's this bottom-up movement. I believe in that. But there has to be, I think, a top-down change as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that mobilizing people is is part of that. And we've tried, we've done that already. We got, for instance, I mean, here's a great thing: the USDA for the first time they run the guidelines. This they um, they're running the 2020 guidelines, and they said instead of reviewing all the science this time around, we're just going to select certain topics that we think are worthy of review. And here is our list of topics. And on that pretty short list was. Um, were saturated fats and the low-carb diet. And then they opened a public comment period for a month. And we put out a call to all of our members and friends and people and said, please submit your comments. You know, we didn't give them a script or an auto-generated letter, but we said, please submit your comments and tell your story. Well, in the end, there were about 6,000 comments and about two-thirds of them were on saturated fats and low-carb diets, um, which we can't guarantee came from you know, our, our effort, but I think that reflect, that was where we, what we had asked people to comment on because we think it's so important. Um, so that's ways in which, you know, we can all try to influence the process and, and have our voices be heard. Yeah. Um, I know too, with like, uh, what I think of like when you, when you mentioned like people kind of know what they're supposed to do and it's just this kind of weird situation where it's not working for them. You know, like I think of like the, the the food pyramid and like i think most people if i if i showed them a food group they could probably tell me about where on that food pyramid that that thing that that food belonged and what the, the the topic i find really interesting is like how are people knowledgeable of this but not necessarily able to make it a intuitive way of a way of eating because to me that tells me that something's off like biologically like we're not sending the body the right signals to kind of give it what it needs and then you end up you know you go into the grocery store and even if you stay in the periphery like they say is the smart spot to shop you're probably going to still end up with a high carbohydrate uh, shopping list and you know what I've seen and kind of experienced myself too is like when you're on a high carbohydrate approach you cannot trust the signals your body's telling you so like you might eat a quote unquote healthy diet according to the food pyramid, but your body's going to be asking for some more nutrients before you actually need more energy. And this kind of results in this like kind of overconsumption of foods that are going to, you know, cause people to get fat and get overweight and, you know, lose energy. And, and I think salt, like you mentioned, falls right into that as well. It's like we, you shop for food and it's like advertising low sodium, low sodium, and then people are, their bodies are craving sodium, so then they're seeking out more food to get that sodium, and it's just kind of this nasty spiral where you cannot follow that program intuitively and trust your body's signals in order to kind of maintain a proper energy balance. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that um, a, a, a sticking point for most people is that, and there are very few people whose doctors or nutritionists or dietitians are recommending the low-carb diet to them. You know, most people, I was just speaking yesterday from somebody from one of the top hospitals in New York who runs the obesity program there, and he said, well, we, you know, we feed, we, we feed them a high-carbohydrate diet. Well, he calls it, it's like 50% carbs. And and we tell them the keto diet's okay, but we tell them that's probably not sustainable. So I was like, well, why don't you why don't you try suggesting the diet that has the most evidence behind it and seems to work best, which is a keto diet? But you know, most people aren't recommending that. And again, it gets back to this point. We said, well, you know, I can't really because that's considered a fad, dangerous diet, and I have you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm obligated legally our program to give certain kinds of advice that's consistent with the so-called gold standard of the dietary guidelines. So again, I know I sound like a broken record, but like going the guidelines are just like they just have to change because they have a kind of stranglehold on the ability of, of medical professionals, healthcare professionals to really um, to, to, to be able to give guidance that is anything but you know high carbohydrate diets. And you're right. A high carbohydrate diet is like once you're on that diet, you can't really trust yourself. You do really, you probably do have to count calories. You know, you you probably have to do all. You know, you can't really trust because your body is not getting what it needs on that diet. Hey, hey, Nina. Two two little topics here. One is, you know, and I and I kind of watched in the you know kind of from the distance how the how the 2015 guidelines went down. Was it 2015 guidelines went down? And, you know, I was kind of seeing where they were kind of dancing around the topic of sustainability. And they said, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to include sustainability issues in the guidelines. Do you find that there's a pretty strong push to do that? And I know there's a lot of pushback saying that, you know, the cattle industry or the animal agriculture industry is this, this awful driver of environmental issues. And we have to include that in the guidelines. Do you think that's going to feature in the 2020 guidelines or 2025 guidelines? Are we going to get to that point where they where that is the, the, the driver of what we eat versus what's best for human health. Is that, is that anything you have a concern about or any sort of insight into? Hey folks, Human Performance Outlier podcast is very happy to announce that we have brought on ButcherBox as one of our sponsors. Uh, with ButcherBox, you can get some high quality meat and cut out the middleman so that you save quite a bit on what would normally be the charge you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, with that, on your first order, if you use promo code HPO, you'll get 20% off plus free bacon. Sean, why don't you tell them about your experience with ButcherBox? Yeah, I mean, I've used ButcherBox, you know, for quite a while now. I've, I've run through several of their, their uh, different boxes. And, you know, for me, and, and by the way, that's a pretty good deal there uh, relative to some of the other stuff I've seen out there. But it has been, uh, you know, very consistently good, a good product. You know, it's always been, you know, the, the quality of the meat's been very good. Uh, for you guys that are concerned about it, they are a 100% antibiotic, hormone-free product that is a grass-finished product. The meat comes out of Australia, uh, and it has a very uh, – I find, you know, because and I'll be honest, I, I, I prefer grain-fed beef in general, but I find that this particular uh, grass-finished product uh, tastes pretty solid. I mean, it's pretty good. You know, a lot of the, the grass-finished uh, meat can taste a little bit uh, almost gamey. 
uh, and I don't find that to be the case uh, with with the butcher box product, and probably because of the length of time the animal spent on grass, and they get a little bit more marbling in there, and I think that helps. And so, I've had a, a very good experience with them, and I highly recommend them. All right, folks, head over to butcherbox.com and hit promo code HPO. Thank you, and back to the show. Um, I think environmental sustainability is important and ought to be a concern. However, I think for the dietary guidelines, that's a that's a committee, a 13 to 15 person committee whose expertise is just on nutrition and health. They really don't know how to make diet sustainable. That's not their expertise. And it's a really a separate scientific question. That ought to be, you know, that ought to be hashed out by environmental scientists. So my view is let's figure out what diet makes humans healthy. We clearly have not done a very good job of that. You know, witness the obesity and diabetes epidemics. Let's certainly not make this diet sustainable because this diet, to make this diet sustainable would be to make obesity and diabetes sustainable. That would be a terrible mistake. So, but let's, let's you know, let's find, answer the question of what diet does make humans healthy and then hand that over to environmental scientists to work on making that sustainable. But I fear, you know, my fear is, as I'm sure you have too, which is just that you know, the kind of the fake science that the, the, the PR world has gotten, you know, has gotten run out so far ahead of the actual science itself. I mean, we really, we, we're living in a time where, you know, a few studies have concluded that cows cause, you know, all global warming or most of global warming and are responsible for the, the depletion of you know, vast amounts of resources and that's where that's the best thing that we could do to help with the environment is to stop eating meat and i think that that's just based on it seems to be based on very weak inchoate science and yet that consensus is just run out ahead of the science in a way that is is worrisome so you know what should happen as a matter of good policy is one thing and then what's happening in the world of the media and 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 uh, premature conclusions based on weak science is just is is something else. Yeah, I, I just hope we don't have to have the, the the big greenhouse surprise book written thirty years from now as we've you know made this horrible mistake. And so hopefully somebody can get on that because I agree with you. I think a lot of the the evidence that's used to to su- support environmental damage by animal agriculture is often misrepresented, and it's not a fair. You know, it under under uh, takes into account a lot of other things that mitigate that. And so it's, it's again, it's a totally different topic. You know, one of the th- interesting points of your book, and and we had you know Tucker uh, Goodrich on earlier on in the podcast. You know, one of our early shows, we were talking about seed oils and vegetable oils, and I know in your book you go into that quite a bit. Can you can you touch on a little bit of that stuff? I know we've been, I think Crisco's been out for a hundred and five years now, or something like that. Can you just talk us through the uh, uh, the vegetable oil woes, or, or <laughs> you know, we we've had this thing where we McDonald's was told to put trans fats in the oils, and now we're taking them out, and how that's played out over the last really century or so. Yes, and I in under in under five minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I encourage to read my book because it's such a fascinating history, and I don't know anywhere else where it really is kind of it's laid out there. But I mean. Uh, so vegetable oils really 
started out with cottonseed oil were used to lubricate machinery in the Industrial Revolution in the late 1900s. And then some clever soap, uh, Procter & Gamble soap makers um, and candle makers realized that they could harden that those oils into something that looked like lard. Um, and so in 1911, they did, they, 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 um, they, uh, they, they launched that product as, as Crisco. Um, it was supposed to replace lard. It was just hardened vegetable oils. And they figured it was actually a brilliant genius thing. They had figured out how to harden the vegetable oil by, um, using a metal catalyst and through a process called hydrogenation. So those are basically hydrogenated oils or hardened vegetable oils. That was the first vegetable oil, oil for human consumption was Crisco in America, lard, uh, replacement lard. And they convinced through a brilliant advertising campaign, they convinced American housewives that this this artificial lard was better than the real thing. It didn't involve killing animals. It was made in clean, um, you know, science labs with with sparkling clean silver counters. And you should adopt this, adopt Crisco over the way of your grandmother's old fashioned recipes. And this was the way to be modern. So. Um, and then there, after that, they figured out how to um, sell just basic straight oils um, without being hardened. Hardening had always been had always to deal with the fact that oils themselves in their oil form is inherently hugely in, unstable. They oxidize really quickly. They create they degrade into hundreds of oxidation products and they cause in the body inflammation. Um, so they had to figure out how to stabilize the oils to sell them as oils. And they did that by about this in the 1940s. So then we had Crisco oil and all these different oils. And um, I had a whole story in my book that I won't go into about how Crisco oil influenced the American Heart Association going back to 1948. And, and that was probably why we have this whole theory that you should not eat saturated fats in favor of unsaturated vegetable oils. So vegetable oils came to be seen as like this medicinal and they are still today, like a, like a, a doctor would prescribe them to per, prevent a heart attack because they lower your cholesterol. So, um, and then they became so popular because uh, for this reason, it was thought you could avoid, you could avoid heart disease by having vegetable oils over saturated fats, replace butter with margarine, replace meat with, um, with Crisco oil. And so really throughout the 70s and especially in the 1980s there's more and more and more vegetable oils in our food supply so all movie theaters they were pressed to get rid of their their they were using coconut oil get rid of that for their popcorn fry them in vegetable oil and uh, make popcorn and vegetable oils instead and all the food manufacturers started using these uh vegetable oils in cookies crackers chips they just became the backbone of the whole food industry and 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 gradually over time it became soybean oil soybean oil was the main oil that's been used and is used, used today it has increased by 121,000% um over the course of the 20th century so no foodstuff has increased to a greater degree than vegetable oils they represent 7 to 8% of all the calories that we eat per day they since 1970 they've increased in the um the calorie increase has been almost 90% in, um, for Americans. So, um, so then, but then it was discovered, oh, when you hydrogenate oils, which you have to do, even when they're in their vegetable form, you have to lightly hydrogenate them to make them stable. Then that creates as a byproduct trans fats, trans fats are bad for health. 
So then we had to get rid of trans fats. That all happened through the 2000, last 20 years or so. We've gotten rid of trans fats. Now we're back to these like regular old vegetable oils that are not stabilized through hydrogenation and are um, are their original, highly unstable, easily oxidizable selves. Um, I hope this isn't too confusing because I've gone through it at such a rapid fire pace. But we've gone back to using regular old vegetable oils, and they are highly unstable, especially when heated. Anybody who's done a chemistry experiment knows you speed up the reactions if you heat them. That's what happens in every single restaurant fryer operation any restaurant in the country um, when they, they, they're they cooking everything in vegetable oils and especially deep fried stuff like French fries. And they, you know, what we find is that they, the oils, especially when heated, they create hundreds of degraded oxidation products. We, it's been shown that those oxidation products enter the food and that they then enter your body and they cross the blood brain barrier and they cause massive inflammation, um, including in some cases that have been documented sepsis shock um, because of the, the level of inflammation. So, you know, I'm very worried about these trans-free oils that we now use. And, of course, the original sin, in my view, is that we were told not to eat saturated fats, lard, butter, ghee, tallow. They're all solid, right? Solid means stable. They don't oxidize when heated. Um so, uh, you know, we can't go back to those because we still have caps on saturated fats. Yeah, it's again, it's it's just amazing to think that we've got a food that we, you know, that was used to, to you know, grease machines and now we're eating this stuff. And, and so, you know, it's only been in the human diet for, you know, about a century or so, give or take. And so now we're. We're, we're somehow thinking that that was something we're supposed to eat, which amazes me. But when you talk about trans fat, I think it's, all, it's always nice to point out there. there's a little caveat because there are some naturally occurring trans fats that occur in animal products. I think I think it's conjugated linoleic acid, which is one of those. And so that, that doesn't fall into the same category as the trans fats that are artificially produced. Because a lot of people will see, they'll look at a hamburger and sometimes on the ingredients they'll see, you know, one or two grams of trans fat in there. And then you have to point out that those aren't the same as the ones that occur from you know, synthetic manufacturing. Yeah, that is just one of the, it shows you how complicated this whole field is and why um, we have to be so careful, right? Yes, it, ruminant animals in their production of fats, they create conjugated linoleic acid. That is, that has actually the exact same chemicals um, uh, written molecular structure as artificial trans fats. And yet, they have a different chemical formation um, when you actually, uh, they're, they're, they're a different structure. And they behave totally differently. You know, a tiny thing just makes a huge difference in your body. The way it's treated is, is hugely different. And yet, um, they're now treated as the same. So the WHO, the World Health Organization, is banning trans fats. And because it's just too small a detail for them, I guess. They're just banning all trans fats, including the trans fats that come from ruminant animals, which is nuts. You know, that's a naturally occurring fat for millennia. The other is a recent invention in a chemical, in an industry uh, chemistry lab. I mean, <laughs> like our policy should recognize that fundamental difference, but it doesn't. And and that will be a tragedy for you know for humans. Why do you, 
just stay out of policy. Well, I, I think some people point, point to like the, the, the I think Brazil has a, a, a national guidelines in eating, which is very more relaxed. It's not so prescriptive. It's basically eat with your family, cook more and eat real food, basically, which is probably all we really need. Um, when we talk, because you met, you referenced the World Health Organization. We had uh, Dr. George Eads on a couple of days ago, and she talked about, you know, they they came out with this uh, based on the IARC, uh, can, you know, uh, findings that, that red meat was a, you know, type two carcinogen processed red meat, or processed meat was a type one. Can you talk? Are there any conflicts of interest associated with the World Health Organization that we might need to be aware about? Um, well, it was interesting. There's a um, a talk that's been given by one of the participants in that uh, IR decision on red meat and cancer, and it's it, he's it will publish soon as a as a paper. Uh, he's a participant from USDA, and he reported that um, the vast majority of the panel were um, uh, that made that came to that decision were vegetarians who didn't eat red meat and had been publishing. For at least 20 years, um, papers that are that were trying to show that red meat causes cancer and other diseases. So I would I think those are awfully strong biases against red meat. Um, and the reality is that in the international nutrition community, uh, it's 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 hard to meet somebody who does not seem to favor the vegetarian diet. That seems to be the bias of the the community now, and. Um, and that seems to have been a factor in in this IARC decision because, I mean, it's very hard to otherwise understand because the evidence base was so incredibly weak. I mean, you're talking about entirely uh, nutritional epidemiological studies that are inherently weak. They show only association, not causation. And and if you, are, if you rely on those studies, you're, they're supposed to be what's called a relative risk, which is a size of the kind of the, the, the a measure of the size of the association is supposed to be at least two um, before even considering it as being something that might be real. And in the case of red meat uh, and cancer, those relative risks were 1.17 and 1.18. So 1.17 for fresh red meat, 1.18 for processed meat. I mean, those are almost one one being no effect and definitely a lot lower than two. So, I mean, how you, how you understand taking those numbers and concluding as they do really, really raises, you know, I think fairly raises the question of, of, of the, of bias entering into that decision. Yeah. I mean, just to, to, to reemphasize that point, you know, you're talking about a 200% increase versus a 17% increase. And we know that looking at that nutritional epidemiology, 17% is nothing. It's almost like it could be total chance. It's not even worth even looking at. When I see all these epidemiology studies and you look at the hazard ratios and they're all 1.1 or 1.2 and maybe 1.3, you still got to look at them and say, this is, this tells me nothing at all. I mean, there's so much uh, confounding data that could have caused that and then bias and all sorts of things. We had Gary Fetke on talking about the tremendous bias in all aspects of the review process from the data collection, study design, you know, the funding, the research bias, the readership bias and so on and so forth. So it's really, you know, it just shocks me that we, we, we make these big proclamations on really weak science. You know, it's, it's just, you know, it's kind of amazing. Well, I did a, um, a, talk on red meat and health that you can find under uh, low carb down under has posted it and and it reports this insider information 
um, by this member who was on the IARC panel. And he talks about how um, not only is was there this bias amongst participants that he saw, but bias in the evidence that was submitted. So that, um, you know, so the, the studies that, that contradicted um, this, this, some of the ideas about the mechanisms that are, that are thought to produce that by which cancer red meat might produce cancer. Like the, the, the studies that contradicted that were just not submitted. And when he raised those questions, why are these studies not included? He was told to literally, he was told to shut up and sit down. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really quite shocking. I mean, in my experience, um, you know, when I was first reading about the IARC decision, which, by the way, they, they published the IARC, the IARC decision came out in 2015, and they did not publish the substantiating evidence for it for more than two, two years later. So they allowed this. I mean, imagine they publish a claim. Nobody can verify or validate the claim. And um, they, don't give, they don't give any of the data upon which they base their claim. And then that just, so their claim just spreads out across the world, meat causes cancer, but they, they never provided any of their data that they showed to prove it. So the data isn't published for another two plus years. And then it turns out instead of reviewing 800 papers as they said they did, they really only reviewed 12 or 13. Um, but it's just far too late. You know, it's it's one of these things where, you know, we're, we live in, in a world where, where fake facts get out ahead of, of reality. This is where, you know, fake facts were allowed to, to circulate for two plus years before the actual science came out. And then nobody, you know, who's going to listen to the actual science when it actually emerges as it has now? So, um, you know, it's really uh, the other thing that I found when the IARC originally announced this decision back in 2015 is that there had been actually two large randomized controlled clinical trials um, funded by the National Institutes of Health, multi-center trials that had, in the course of their study, they had reduced red meat dramatically. Um, one was the Women's Health Initiative, the other was the Polyp Prevention Trial. They're both trials that had as their primary outcome was cancer, the main thing they were looking at. And at the end of those trials, they could not find that reducing red meat uh, reduced rates of cancer at all. Okay, so that's a rigorous kind of evidence that shows cause and effect, far more rigorous than epidemiology, which only shows association. And those clinical trials were never considered by the IARC committee. And, and, and they, weren't, they were suggested and they were rejected. So yeah. it's really like you really don't know what's going on. It just doesn't sound like the science that you or I would imagine should should go on. Yeah, I mean, that's again, that's you see the conflict there, particularly if, you know, reportedly many members of the committee were already kind of set in their ways, choosing a vegetarian lifestyle and, and then voting on you know, this, this proclamation, Nina, do you, I mean, I know you, cause you did so much research for your initial book. Are you still looking into some of this stuff? And let me ask you, this is a kind of a little bit of an aside, something I've talked about for the last two years is, you know, we have, you know, we have the dietary guidelines, which tell us, you know, what foods to eat, but we also have, you know, something called the dietary reference indices or the, what used to be called the R, or the still use as the RDA's recommend daily allowances. And when I look back at how some of that stuff has developed, 
I equally see that the science on that is is pretty shaky as well. Do you have any insight on how that's been developed? I mean, I know I was reading about like the initial calcium recommendations were basically just made based on studying two people in a lab. And I mean, and, and to me, that's that, that made its way into the literature and into the recommendations initially. And so do you have any feel for those sort of recommendations? Are they equally as suspect as, you know, the, the you know, the, the general dietary guidelines? You know, I have to say I haven't looked in them, in, I haven't researched them in great depth, but I have heard, as you have, that there's a, there's a lot of shaky science and, and, and sort of uh, estimations and, and projections that have gone into those RDAs. And there are, there are quite a number of scientists who really want um, a recalculation of the RDAs in order to make them more rigorous and evidence-based, but that there just hasn't been money for it. Um, but, you know, I've heard, like, especially the recommendation on vitamin E is not evidence-based and maybe another number of other ones. So, um, yeah, I think it's just another area where we really need we, we really need more evidence. Uh, it's amazing, you know, in the light of all this, you think, like, well, how is it that we were ever healthy <laughs> when we didn't, have, we didn't have any evidence? But somehow we were, and we were because cultures human societies and civilizations figured out how to be healthy and they did that through millennia by figuring out what to eat and you know what you what a woman needed to eat before what rare spring egg she needed to eat before becoming pregnant in order to have adequate nutrients in her body and you know we have we've lost that knowledge um but you know in an area where i agree upon with michael pollan like if you eat what your grandparents eat you know and they probably ate liver, you, you probably, you'd probably be in pretty good shape. And then you don't have to wait for the government to get around to redoing their RDAs. Yeah, that's something that I've always found kind of interesting, too, because you sometimes will hear like uh, this message of like, well, how am I supposed to know what to do? And how can I like figure this all out? And I, I know Sean has shared this much as an awful lot where he's like, well, if you feel good and your performance is optimized, that's a pretty good sign that your body's working for you and not against you. Um, and it's, you know, like that was the metric that we had for the longest time. And we haven't seen anything but regression since we've moved away from that metric. So it's, it's really kind of an interesting thing where I think sometimes people will frown upon that because it's not like, there's no there's no lab test when you say I feel really good and I'm performing better than I ever have before, and then they want to look at a blood panel and say, well, this looks like it might be off, but you're you know, more more athletic and more like energetic than you've ever been before. It's, it seems like that's kind of, you know, a warning sign to me that you know the metrics we're using may be off, and they certainly are probably off when they're put into the context of you know an nutritional approach that like Dr. Baker's taking as opposed to your standard American diet. Yeah, I guess I could argue on both sides of that because I agree with you that your own sense of well-being and health and performance ought to be your major guiding lights when you're thinking about your diet. But it's also true that um, there are longer-term effects are um, are unclear, and so we need to 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 be you know exercise some humility about what we know or don't know about, you know, we feel good in the moment. And, but, you know, for many people say, for instance, on the, on the vegan diet, when people start that diet, many of them feel excellent. You know, they've come off of maybe a sad American diet and they feel great. 
they've given up sugar, they've given up refined grains, and um, they, they, you know, they, they feel really healthy. And then, you know, the reality is, is that humans are able to um, maintain in their bodies stores of nutrients, but then over time they deplete. So, so quite a number of vegans, they'll be vegan for four or five, six years, and they won't notice for quite a while that they, you know, that they may, maybe they're depleted in B12 or one of the B vitamins because it's really not included in a, in a, in a vegan diet. Um, so we have to, I think, be, you know, humble about what we, what we can really know in, in the longer term and, and maybe take as guidance, you know, what humans ate historically when they, they did survive multi-generationally. Um, we know they did eating meat, so that that's a source of comfort. We 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 don't know of instances of that with the vegan diet, so that's maybe more of a question. And Nina, it was just to your point. We just we just interviewed uh, actor William Shufelt, and he spent about four years on a vegan diet, and he actually looked pretty good and was looking pretty healthy. But he said he was just not feeling good. Now he switched over to a ketogenic diet, and then finally onto a carnivorous diet, and so that kind of supports that point of, you know, you can feel good for a while. And oftentimes as things kind of go south, you have to make a change. I think that's good advice for anybody. You have to kind of constantly evaluate what your metrics are, whether it's objective or subjective measures and, and, and just kind of make those adjustments. You know, one of the criticisms about saying we should eat like our grandparents or our great grandparents or our ancestors is, well, those people didn't live past 30 or 35. In many cases, you know, the, the, uh, average life expectancy really was sort of bottomed out, you know, from about 30, 35 for several thousand years of recorded history. And then only in, you know, maybe in the 1800s, mid 1800s, as we start to kind of climb up as, you know, sanitation, uh, access to clean water, you know, uh, you know, better health technology in general improve. And we've now got the, you know, life expectancies in some countries in the mid 80s and upper 80s in places like Hong Kong and Japan and stuff like that. And so that is one of the, you know, I don't know, because, you know, whenever I say, you know, these people were, were arguably very healthy, you know, 10,000 years ago, which is, you know, again, that's more or less speculation. You know, we always are credit. We always get this. Well, they only lived to 30 years and they wouldn't they didn't get those chronic diseases. But we're seeing, you know, the counter to that is we are seeing chronic disease, diabetes, depression, uh, and, I, and I label depression as a chronic disease, just like anything else, uh, arthritis, obesity, and so on and so forth, in really young people these days. I mean, we're getting it in, you know, preteens even in some cases. And so I think that argument tends to fall apart when we start critically looking at where we're at, you know, in this country and, and unfortunately many others. Yeah, there's, so there's that argument. You know, what I would, uh, yeah, yeah, what about childhood obesity? That's, you know, those people under 40. You know, how do you explain those people? It didn't used to exist and, and exist now in, in epidemic rates. But also, I think that um, it's, a, it's a fallacy that, that people did not live to be past 40. There were 1 million Americans living to be 55 or older prime age, in, in 1900, prime age of, of contracting heart disease, and heart, yet heart disease was exceedingly rare. Obesity and diabetes, you know, at very, very low levels. So that's one million people not uh, exhibiting any kind of disease. And, and, and so, and we know there were long-lived people, um, maybe not in as abundant numbers as there are today, but, you know, we know there were healthy, non-diabetic, non-obese um, populations all over the world. 
So uh, who, you know, who lived in and in, in became an, way past age 40. So you know, I think that argument is just, it's just, a, it's a, it's a false argument when you, when you really investigate the data behind it. Nina, just, I mean, cause you know, we spend a lot of time talking in ourselves in our, in our, in this low carb sort of world, you know, as some people call it an echo chamber. Do we have an idea? Maybe, you know, is there statistics showing what percentage of the population is starting to adopt this? What percentage of the, of the, you know, at least in, you know, in the U S or other Western countries, has this become more and more mainstream? Are we still, you know, in this two, three percent, again, I don't know how big this sort of, uh, pushes and and I know we talked to Gary Fetke again. I'll reference him. He was talking about you know you get to about a level of about three percent and then you start to see significant change. Are we are, where are we at? Or can you or do you have an assessment of where we're at right now? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know that I know that people who are avoiding carbs instead of fat is a growing number. I know that according to Gallup polls and other polls that it's definitely growing. It's definitely over a third of the American population now who's, who blames carbs for obesity rather than fat. And that that number is growing fast. I know that keto is the fastest growing diet search term. Um, and that the low fat people, people, the low fat diet as a search term and Google is fast declining. So, you know, the trends are pretty clear. Um, and I don't think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I do think we're in a moment of paradigm shift. Uh, when you look at the food consumption, you know, consumption of butter is up, consumption of dairy is up, like despite all the keto bashing you see in the media, I mean, the American population is, is going their own way. And that has to be that, you know, people are getting healthy and their coworkers and friends and family are seeing that and, the, and they're, they're doing the same thing. So um, I think all the trends are really, you know, really in favor of higher fat, uh, higher fat, lower carb diets. Um, and then we'll continue to see that from the bottom up. Um, and, I, and when I say paradigm shift, I think it's important to understand that that's happening really at an expert level, too. There's more, and that's important because, again, those are the gatekeepers of nutrition policy. They're the people who serve on those committees. They make the decisions. They write the guidelines. They're the people who tell your doctor what to recommend to you. You know, nobody likes to be at odds with their doctor, so it's good if your doctor is recommending, you know, has good evidence-based advice. And, and at the highest levels, we see a lot of change, too, in terms of the articles being published and, and the kinds of conversations that are happening at expert level uh, in, 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 you know, latest American Diabetes Association conference had a presentation for the first time on the low carb diet, <laughs> um, you know, decades too late, but it happened. And, and I think they're starting to see the writing on the wall and, and really shift and, you know, understanding they need to shift. So I think we're going to see that happen in, in fairly rapid order. Yeah, and, and and I know because I'm here, you know, working on the bottom up approach. You know, I'm here, <laughs> you know, trying to do the stuff on the social media. And I think, you know, and, and I know you you're familiar with Tim Noakes, and he talks about the wisdom of the crowds. And I think, you know, the the thing that like say you know Robert Atkins didn't have back in the 1970s when he was vilified for you know kind of a similar sort of approach was that he didn't have this huge 
social media engine, you know, this interconnectedness. And I think there is there's a huge potential there. And, and you know, I think we're starting to capitalize on. I know I'm thinking that's what I'm trying. That's my strategy, and I certainly appreciate, you know, you're working at it from the top end. But how? If somebody wants to support what you're trying to do with changing the message up at the political levels, how can they best help? What what would the person listening to this podcast do to say, I want to influence the, the 2020 guidelines? What else can I do? Um, can you give us any insight on what might be the best way to do that? Yes. So I would say go to nutritioncoalition.us, which is uh, the website of um, our group, the Nutrition Coalition. Sign up for the newsletter donate. Um, and through the newsletter, we will get to people, um, information about, um, volunteering and participation opportunities, or you can write, um, to info at nutritioncoalition.us and suggest, you know, just let us know you're there as a volunteer. We're developing ways where people can participate and, and help be advocates on this. I think it's incredibly important. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm a journalist. I never thought I would be doing something in the realm of advocacy, but it just has to happen. Like you feel very strongly. I feel very strongly that the truth really has to get out there. You know, truth is a kind of justice. And people denied that truth have been so many people so, so grievously harmed. Um, and so I feel it's deeply important that our policy be based on, on good and rigorous science. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great sentiment and something to kind of wind down with. I mean, I was just kind of noticing that you, both you, myself, and, and uh, Zach, we were all on, you know, Joe Rogan's show, and he's got this huge, incredible audience now. And I think that's, uh, again, that just goes back to this, how do we influence people? And I think the more people that, uh, uh, you know, whatever your platform is for getting information out, because now if you've got an Instagram account with 500 followers, you know, you can influence 500 people. And I, and I encourage people to to use that, you know, use that in a positive way rather than because there's so much negativity that happens on social media. And I think it's it's, it's a source of very, a very good source of uh, positive influence if, if used correctly. I totally agree with you. I love what you're doing on social media. You know, it's just fantastic how out there you've been, and um, and I I love watching you. So keep it up; it's great. Well, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I like to compete, Nina. So I just kind of like, it. you know, it's just like it's like I'm trying to win social media. But I mean, it's you know, it, and, you know, you have your battles and you have your silliness. But I, but I mean, ultimately, you know, my my goal is to to try to improve as many people's lives as possible. And, uh, you know, cause I, I've seen it from the work, you know, I've cut off so many damn diabetic legs and taken care of so many problems health wise. And then when you find that you've got this thing, that's so easy, you know, that people could just do, and, and you make such a huge impact on people's lives. It's hard to not want to talk about that. And I think that's one, one of the reasons why we're all here. So how did your, how did you, how did your carnivore challenge go? Can I ask? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you know, we, we're still, we still kind of got it out there, you know, when, when Matt Mayer and I, and I think we'll have Matt on the show to talk about the details, but we had, you know, we had several hundred people did a 90 day thing and yeah, we, we, we're getting, we're getting some of the data. We get, we collected something like a million points of data and, and Matt was just struggling on how to, you know, how to figure out how to deal with all this data. You know, it really wasn't the, you know, we weren't researched, but we've got all this data. So we're sorting through that and we saw that the average person, you know, they, you know, they did, the the couple hundred people that we got data on, uh, the average person ate about two pounds of meat a day. They on average they lost 14 kilograms, which I thought was a pretty significant. They lost three inches off their waist. Their uh, 
their heart resting heart rate went down by eight points. Uh, none of them got scurvy. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, you know, we've got some more data. We've got more data coming out. So Matt is just crunching that data. So we still got the initial stuff. I'd like to do a more formalized one, you know, in the near future where we can get more rigorous uh, starting points and end points. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, it's, it's you, you kind of have to walk a line of, you know, what's ethical and what's not as far as research is concerned, I guess. And this is kind of informal stuff. But at the same time, there's people every day doing their own challenges. You know, we had the potato guy, you know, the guy went on the all potato diet and he had 10 million people hearing about it. And so you, you go, do you make that illegal? Do you tell people they can't go on a potato diet and be talked about in the media? You know, so it, it's just kind of a, you know, do you have to have these institutional review boards and federal funding to do this sort of stuff? And so I, that's my quandary as to where it is as far as being able to do it. And I, I think it's kind of just a free speech thing. If you've got, you've got 500 people that say, I want to do a carnivore diet for three months and check my hemoglobin A1C at the beginning and the end, I think it's their prerogative to do that. And if somebody wants to gather the information and compile it and, and put it out there for other people, I, I think that's fine. Uh, there are other people that might say, well, no, because these people are at risk and, you know, they, they're, they're having to draw their blood and blah, blah, blah. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, so far, it seems to be fine and other people are doing it. So I'm just going to keep plugging along until... Uh, you know, until we can't do it anymore. Well, I would talk to David Ludwig, who did a Facebook survey um, on type 1 diabetics and ended up publishing that information. And it may be similar to what you're doing, but this idea that you know, just survey data, it's not rigorous clinical trial data. People are self-selected. That means that, that biases them towards somebody who would want to follow this diet. That's a inherent flaw in this type of... Um, study, but it does show if you can show an absence of harm and and some you know good outcomes, it's it becomes a kind of pilot study for then legitimizing a future experiment, you know, a future more rigorous experiment. So I think that could be very useful. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, all you know, much of the science is you know is observational anecdotes where we get a lot of this information. You know, I know Tim Noakes talks about you know discovering H. pylori as a source of you know, gastric ulcers, you know, and that was, that was laughed at until it was proven and done. And now we've, we've accepted that as pretty much common knowledge. And so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I, you know, as, as you, you know, you probably see a little bit of my social media. I mean, every single day I get some sort of person telling me their autoimmune disease went away, their ulcerative colitis went away, their rheumatoid arthritis went away, you know, their skin got better, they lost 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds, so on and so forth. So there, there's something there, you know, I don't know, I would be too presumptuous to say that 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 it's 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 uh, we know why it's happening, you know. But I think there's something there, and I do think it needs to be studied as far as you know whether it's a ketogenic diet, a low carb diet, like they, and there's already studies on that. But the carnivorous diet is still kind of uh, being looked at very skeptically, and and I and I and I, I think that's completely reasonable to do so. But at the same time, you know, at some point you have to say, okay, now we've got. 10,000 people have done this and they've all, none of them have gotten scurvy and they've all, for the most part, had very good results. And so we have to sort of say, you know, when I go back and look into history, you know, historically, I'm like, you know, we weren't, we weren't sitting there on a, on a side of a rock peeing on ketone strips and eating Quest bars, you know? So I'm like, you know, what makes sense from a, you know, what, what would, what would possibly be likely, you know? And, and I think that, eating our protein requirements, which I would argue is much higher than what's what's currently being recommended, 
uh, seems to work well. And how do you get a lot of protein in your diet? Well, you generally eat an animal, you know, back in those days anyway. And so that's one of the things that I think is just totally fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or you eat that or you can eat your soy isolates. So <laughs> <laughs> choose. <laughs> Well, it's great talking to you. I, I'm a great uh, admirer of what you're doing, and, and I want to, you know, congratulations, and um, and thank you for having me on your show. It's just a total pleasure to talk to you. Wonderful, Nina. Well, hopefully we'll get you back on down the road, and, and likewise, the feeling is mutual. I, I, you know, hopefully, you know, we can all kind of come together and uh, make the change that needs to be done, because there are certainly, if we don't, we've got to... A uh, whole uh, big food, big pharmaceutical industry that was is just happy to keep plugging along and making their profits and uh, you know uh, going where you know keeping the status quo because there's a lot of money in the status quo right now and uh, you know you know it's just not worth it's a lot of disease in that too unfortunately. It takes a village, so thank you for being part of the village. <laughs> <laughs> really, I appreciate. It. I, it's great to talk to you. So. Um, so thank you. We'll be in touch, and I appreciate it. It's just great to to talk to have a chance to talk to your audience. I'm really all right. All right, all right. So we'll get this up on. I think Zach will get this up today on at least on the Patreon side, and then we'll release it. You know, a little while later afterwards. You know, just after those folks have had a chance to enjoy it. But uh, thank you, Nina. I'll put it out on social media, and you know, if if you're able to do that, would be great. And then um, I'm sure Zach is equally happy to have you on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. And like Sean said, I'll have it up on the Patreon stuff tonight, and then it'll probably be ready to go on iTunes and all the other podcast stuff in a week and a half or so, and we'll be sure to let you know. Yeah, that's great. Just tag me because I have no I have no team. So if you just have to tag me so that I can see it. Perfect. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Great. Thanks, you guys. It's good talking to you. You too. All right, perfect. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, we have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front of the line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much. Hey folks, thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Thanks again for tuning in 
to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.